Well, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. That's where we're going to start this morning. We'll be looking at a number of things in Isaiah. While you're turning there, I'll start with a little bit of Bible trivia. I have a question for you. While you're turning to Isaiah, I want to, want to know from you guys, where would you turn in your Bibles to find this phrase? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Where is that found in the Bible? Proverbs. You know, that's where I would guess too, but it's actually a trick question. Phrase isn't found in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. That, that phrase is a pretty okay summary of what Solomon says in Proverbs, but that phrase itself is nowhere found in your Bibles. It wasn't invented till 1622. Turns out there's a lot of phrases that we use and assume are in the Bible that, that actually aren't. Here's another one. Money is the root of all evil. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? Really close to the biblical phrase, 1 Timothy 16. The love of money is the root of all evil. Those are close, but actually they're radically different. Nowhere in the Bible does God say that money is evil. Money is just a tool. It's a tool that you can use to worship God. That's good, or to worship itself, and, and that's bad. So, won't find that one in Bible. Here's in the Bible. Here's another one: cleanliness is next to godliness. How many of you heard that from your mom growing up? Sorry, moms, it's not in the Bible. Um, actually, here's the here's the funny thing: uh, when you look in the Gospels, uh, who who's actually saying this, or something similar to this? It's the Pharisees. It's the bad guys that are saying that cleanliness is next to godliness. What does Jesus say? Outward cleanliness matters nothing to God. So in the value chain of God's priorities, cleanliness, not real close to godliness. Now, if if you're a kid out there in the audience, let me clarify. If your parents tell you to clean your room, then that is an issue of obedience to your parents, and and that does matter to God. So still clean your room. But uh, this one, won't find this in the Bible. Here's Here's a final one. God helps those who help themselves. Not found in the Bible. Actually, it's really ancient. It goes back to 600 BC, but it's It's not biblical, it's actually from Greek mythology. It's part of Aesop's fables, written 600 BC. It's attributed to Hercules, who said to a a man in need, the gods help them that help themselves. It became popular in America through the writings of Ben Franklin. He included it in Poor Richard's Almanac, and it became modern parlance. It actually became, really quickly, a motto of American religion, because really this this summarizes Americanness, doesn't it? We in America, we celebrate the the self-made man, the man who, who raises himself up through his intellect and creativity and courage and hard work to make a, a great man of himself. We're the nation that celebrates education and self-help. If, if we can just educate everybody sufficiently, we'll build a better society. And indeed, we in America have built an incredible society. We enjoy peace and prosperity that's unparalleled in the history of mankind. So in America, it seems like this has proven true, that God helps those who help themselves. But is it true in fact? Is that expression actually biblical? Is it true that God dedicates his help to those who, who through their skill and intellect and hard work, do their best to make a better life for themselves. Or, or to ask it a, a different way. When we face trials and crises in our life, whether it's a financial crisis or a health crisis or a relational crisis, does God want us to rely on, on our resources and our efforts to fix our problems? Does God help those who help themselves? Well, Isaiah has a lot to say about that question. 
We're going to start finding an answer in chapter 7. So if you'll look with me there, we're going to look at chapter 7. We're going to look at the events that happened during a guy named Ahaz's life. While he was king of the nation of Judah, remember the nation of Judah, that's where Isaiah lives, that's who he's prophesying to. So let's look at the events of Isaiah chapter 7. Look starting in verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin the king of Aram and Pekah the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind." Now, let me fill in some background here. Uh, The events that Isaiah is describing, these happened around 735 BC. And and here here is the issue. We have a war brewing and here are the the belligerents. Here's the world in that time period. And we're looking at that section right there. And and here are the players. We've got Judah to the south. They're the good guys. Uh, They have King Ahaz at this time. Their capital is Jerusalem. You'll see all those words appear in the text. Uh, To the north, we have Israel, which is also called Ephraim by Isaiah. Their king is Pekah, a guy who's the son of Ramalia, and the capital is Samaria. You'll see all of those words used by Isaiah to describe Israel. Now, you think of Israel and you think good guys, but at this time, they're the bad guys. And north of them, we have Syria, also called Aram by Isaiah. Their king is Rezin, and their capital is Damascus. Now, at this period in world history, Syria and Israel had allied together. Their goal in this alliance was to to defeat their northern enemy, the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria doesn't even appear on this map, way up to the north. But Assyria was, was really strong. So these guys needed all the help they could get. So they asked Judah to join. They asked King Ahaz to join their alliance, but Judah really just wanted to be left out of this one. They really just wanted to be at peace. They did not want to go to war. So Ahaz turns them down. But Syria and Israel realize, man, we can't leave our southern flank unprotected. We can't leave it at the mercy of a guy who won't make up his mind. What if Ahaz later joins our enemy? What if he allies with Assyria? We can't take that risk, so we're going to conquer him preemptively. And so Syria and Israel banded together and marched into Judah, and they easily defeated the border towns. Judah was nothing compared to these guys. And, and they're marching through Judah. They're, they're defeating everyone in their path. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And that's the event that we just read about. Ahaz sees them coming and he and the entire city of Jerusalem are terrified. They're in a panic. And in the midst of that panic, God shows up with an offer. Look with me starting in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz. You and your son share Jeshub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Pause for a second. This is telling us Ahaz is inspecting the pools of Jerusalem. He's checking out their water resources because he, he thinks bad news is coming. He thinks a siege is about to arrive. And God tells Isaiah to take his son, share Jashub. That means a remnant will return. And at this point in the chapter, we don't know if that's good news or bad news. Is it a remnant of the bad guys or a remnant of the good guys? We'll have to see how it plays out. And here's God's offer. Say to him, that is Ahaz, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the sons of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand nor shall it come to pass. 
For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you shall surely not last. What God is offering here, it's kind of hard to follow. What God is saying to Ahaz is, Ahaz, don't worry because I'm going to destroy your enemies for you. They're they're smoldering firebrands. Basically, they have no strength left in them. I'm going to snuff them out really soon. You don't have to worry about these guys. I'm going to take care of them for you. I'm going to deliver you. But there is a condition right there at the end of verse 9. What is the condition? If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Ahaz, to be delivered, you've got to believe. If you want to experience my deliverance for your people, you represent your people, you must trust me, Ahaz. You must rely upon me. If you will accept my help, I will deliver you. That's God's offer to Ahaz. How does Ahaz respond to that? Let's pick it up in verse 10. Then the Lord God spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. What God is doing here is saying, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a confidence booster. Ask me to do anything. Anything you can think of, I'll do it so that you will be courageous. Here is Ahaz's response. Here's his choice. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, that sounds pious to us, doesn't it? Sounds like Ahaz is saying, I'm not going to put God to the test. It sounds like a good thing to say, but actually it's just a savvy way to cover up his disbelief. He doesn't even trust God enough to ask him. This is Ahaz's rejection of God's offer. Ahaz is saying, God, I I really don't think you can deliver me. Isaiah, I'm not interested in what your God can do. I don't even want to give him the time of day. I really don't want to keep talking to you. So I'm not interested in this whole sign thing. And here's why Ahaz rejects God's help. I want you to leave your finger in the book of Isaiah and turn to the left in your Bible to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 16. It fills in some really important information on what's going on in Ahaz's mind here. 2 Kings chapter 16. We'll pick it up in verse 2. A little bit of background information. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, that is, king of Judah. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and even made his son pass through the fire, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Uh, What they're telling us here is that Ahaz was was an idolatrous king. He did not trust, he did not believe that there was anything that special about the God of Israel. So he was going to hedge his bets. He would worship all the gods. Every god he could find, he's going to worship every god because he doesn't believe that his own god is good enough to deliver him, to, to rescue him. Okay, then verse 5. These are the events of Isaiah 7 here. War is coming. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, that's Syria and Israel, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin king of Aram recovered Eleth for Aram and cleared the Judeans out of Eleth entirely. And the Aramaeans came to Eleth and have lived there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. 
So the king of Assyria listened to him, and so the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kerr and put resin to death. Here's what's going on. Ahaz is an idolater, but he's really politically savvy. Politically speaking, he's a smart guy. Here's how he sees the world. Okay, here are our three nations, Judah, Israel, and Syria. Ahaz realizes all of us, all three of us combined are really small compared to this guy. Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria is huge. I'm going to save myself by allying with the enemy of my enemies. I'm going to make an alliance with Assyria. If I'll serve Assyria, they'll deliver me from anyone who raises their hand against me. So that's what Ahaz does. He sends the king of of Assyria. He makes an alliance with him. and, And politically speaking, from a human perspective, that is a brilliant move. But spiritually speaking, it's treachery. You notice in verse 7, Ahaz has to pledge to the king of Assyria, I am your son. That is the language of an oath, of loyalty. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the king of Judah was always supposed to be the son of God, loyal to God. Ahaz says, king of Assyria, I'm going to give you the loyalty that God deserves. Then verse 8, what does Ahaz do? He goes and raids the temple treasury. Money that people gave in worship to God, he takes that money and gives it to the king of Assyria as a tribute, as a payment. Then verse 10, look at verse 10 with me. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw the altar which was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest, the pattern of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. Let me explain what's going on here. King Ahaz goes to Damascus and meets the king of Assyria. And together they worship the pagan gods. And, And Ahaz notices that the king of Assyria really likes the pagan altars he's worshiping at. So King Ahaz goes back to Jerusalem and says, uh, let's change up the temple a bit. Actually, it tells us that they cut up God's altar. They desecrate the temple. They turn it into a place of pagan worship. Why? So that the king of Assyria will like him. That's what it's all about. Ahaz is willing to to violate his relationship with God, to turn his back on the God of Israel, all to please and placate the king of Assyria, his new benefactor. So that's Ahaz's choice. He's not going to rely upon God. Quite the opposite. He's going to rely upon the king of Assyria. He's going to rely upon his political savvy and wit to deliver him. Now, you you probably imagine that makes God pretty angry. (laughs) God is really upset with Ahaz's choice. And he tells Ahaz, there's going to be serious consequences for your treachery. That's what we pick up in verse 13. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 7. God lays out the consequences for Ahaz. Ahaz, here are the consequences of your choice. Look in verse 13. Then he, that is Isaiah, said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Isaiah calls out Ahaz's treachery. He names Ahaz's sin. And then here's the result. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Okay. Look back at verse 14. It's one of the most famous verses in your whole Old Testament. We read it every Christmas. If you're like me, you you probably assume that that verse is about Jesus and that it's good news, right? That's what we all assume about that verse. That's what I used to believe. 
Then I studied it and I arrived at a different opinion. Now, let me be clear. This is a very challenging verse. There's whole commentaries written about this verse. You don't have to agree with my interpretation of this verse. Some of you will not. That's okay. But here's how I understand this verse. Let me lay out a few observations for you about this sign that Isaiah gives in verse 14. First of all, he uses the word virgin, it looks like, in your English translation. If you're using an NAS Bible, though, you probably have a footnote. And on the bottom of your page, the footnote says maiden. Because literally in Hebrew, that word means a woman of marriageable age. It doesn't say anything about her virginity. Actually, there was a separate word in Hebrew for virgin, and this isn't it. All this word means is that she is a a young woman of marriageable age. She may have been a virgin at the time the prophecy was given, but that's not God's point. That's the first thing to observe. Second thing to observe, and you you miss this in English, but in Hebrew, there's a very significant change in the person or pronoun. In Hebrew, the end of verse 14 doesn't actually read, she will call his name Emmanuel, but you will call his name Emmanuel. And he's speaking to a singular woman there. It's to one woman. I, I like how the Net Bible translates verse 14. I think it captures what's going on in Hebrew. Isaiah says, for this reason, the sovereign master himself will give you plural, he's talking to Ahaz and everyone who's standing around Ahaz, a confirming sign. Look, this young woman right here in your presence is about to conceive and will give birth to a son. You, singular young woman, will name him Emmanuel. I think it's clear in Hebrew, Isaiah is speaking to a woman who's present. A woman who's, who's right there with Ahaz, right there with Isaiah. He's speaking to her about this sign. That's the, the second thing to observe. Third thing to observe is the time frame in verse 16. For before the boy, this child, will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Refuse evil and choose good. That's talking about moral accountability. In Judaism, that was the age of 12. When a child reached the age of 12, he was responsible to do that. By that time, by the time this child reaches the age of 12, these two nations you fear, Israel and Syria, will be destroyed. Well, sure enough, three years after the prophecy, Syria is wiped out. And 12 years after the prophecy, Israel's wiped out, both by the kingdom of Assyria. So three years and 12 years. By 12 years, both of them are wiped out. So we would expect the child to be born around them. Jesus, who's born 700 years later, he doesn't fit this time frame. Jesus could not have been assigned to Ahaz. Ahaz knew nothing of Jesus. We need to look for some child who's born around this time period. And actually, we get exactly that child, I think, in chapter 8. So look at chapter 8, starting in verse 1. I think this is the fulfillment of chapter 7, verse 14. This is the sign, child. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift as the booty, speedy as the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, as I read this this passage here, and as I remind myself, in the original Hebrew, there were no chapter divisions It's hard for me to think that the original readers of this prophecy wouldn't just assume that this is the child. It follows right after chapter 7. And the time frame fits perfectly. Israel and Syria wiped out within 12 years. This child would have reached the age of accountability at exactly that time period. He would have been mature right when Israel was wiped out. 
I think he perfectly fits. Actually, I think that's what Isaiah tells us towards the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 18. Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah says, my kids are signs of what God is going to do. And here he's helping us understand what the word sign means in Hebrew. It doesn't necessarily mean something miraculous. It can be a miracle, but it doesn't have to be. A sign is simply anything that God uses to prove the truth of what he's just said. It can be natural. It can be miraculous. Actually, throughout the book of Isaiah, it's usually natural things, including Isaiah's kids. Isaiah's kids are signed children. They prove the truth of God's words. So I I think this is the fulfillment of chapter 7, verse 14. I think this is the child who would be a sign, a proof to Ahaz that God was at work, that God could be relied upon. Now, there's an objection that's often leveled against this. You look at this and realize, well, wait a minute. His name's not Emmanuel. His name is this funky Maher Shalal Hashbaz that literally in Hebrew reads, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. I can only imagine how often this kid got beat up at Hebrew school. (laughs) What a horrible name for a kid to have. It was a sign name. It represented what God was going to do to the nations of Syria and Israel. They were going to be wiped out and plundered very quickly. Indeed, that happened. But his name is not Emmanuel. Is that a problem? Well, we need to remember Jesus' name is also not Emmanuel. Jesus' legal name is what? Jesus. (laughs) There's actually no child in scripture with the legal name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is not a legal name. It's a description of what the child represents. Emmanuel in Hebrew literally means God is with us. That is what Isaiah's son demonstrated. That God is with us. That God is with the nation of Judah. And what's funny about that name Emmanuel is that we always assume it's good news. We always assume God is with us is good news. But it wasn't for Ahaz. Actually, there's a little bit of good news in the Emmanuel prophecy for Ahaz. God does say, sure enough, I am going to destroy your enemies. That's verse 16 of chapter 7. God says, yeah, Ahaz, I'm I'm still going to come in and I'm going to wipe out your enemies because that's what I do. I'm going to wipe them out. But Ahaz, it's not good news for you because the bad news is I'm going to wipe you out too. I'm not going to stop with Syria and Israel. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to come after you. That's the meaning of that weird phrase, a child's going to eat curds and honey. What are curds and honey about? Well, in the context of Isaiah, curds and honey is not good news. Curds and honey pictures a nation that is so decimated, that is so destroyed, that the people can't even farm the ground effectively anymore. They're reduced to scavengers. All they can live off of is is the, the milk that they can get from the animals that are left or the honey that they can find wandering in the forest. Isaiah is saying, God is coming after the nation of Judah, your nation. He's gonna so decimate you, he's gonna so wipe you out that there will only be a remnant left and they will be reduced to scavenging the land. And how's that gonna happen? in verse 17. We usually leave verse 17 off when we read this prophecy. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, on your father's house, such days as have never come since that day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. Be colon, the king of Assyria. That's the day that is coming. Ahaz, because you did not believe, guess what's coming after you? The king of Assyria. The guy that you allied with. Your partner is going to turn on you. He's going to betray you. That's exactly what Assyria did. They came in, they wiped out Syria. That was easy. 
Then they took Israel. That was easy. And then he thought to himself, why stop here? Let's keep going. So he marched into the nation of Judah. They were no match for him. He begins to just decimate city after city. He's going to wipe out and kill an incredible number of of the kingdom of Judah, people in the kingdom of Judah. He's going to siege the the city of Jerusalem. And then finally God will step in. We'll read about that later in the book of Isaiah. The point is, because of Ahaz's choice, his nation would suffer. Because of Ahaz's choice, God was going to bring judgment not just on God's enemies, but on his own people. And now I I think we can draw the conclusion. We can draw the lesson from Ahaz's bad example. Ahaz assumed that God helps those who help themselves. And so he relied upon his political savvy and on his wit and upon his connections to try to deliver himself in his moment of crisis. And Ahaz's example proves that's not true. He made a very bad choice. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who rely upon him. Those who help themselves, God comes against them in judgment. That's always how God operates. He disciplines and judges those who rely upon themselves. That's how the principle played out in Ahaz's day. Now, I want to fast forward 700 years. I want to look at how this principle plays out in Jesus' day. We saw how it worked out for Ahaz. What about Jesus? And at this point, some of you are are a little bit sad out there. You're thinking back just a few weeks. You're realizing you sent Christmas cards with Isaiah 7:14 at the bottom. And you're thinking, do I, do I need to email all my friends a retraction letter and say, um, please send the card back because that wasn't about Jesus. Really sorry about that. Well, no, you don't. <laughs> Isaiah 7:14 was fulfilled directly in Isaiah's son. And yet that prophecy launched a pattern that would prove true in the birth of Jesus. The, the pattern of Isaiah 7 is, is about how God operates in his dealings with humanity. It launched a pattern. God said, I am going to prove that I am worthy of your faith and I'm going to do it through a child. The symbol, the epitome of weakness. I'm going to prove that I'm worthy of your faith. That was what Isaiah's son did. He was proof that God was worthy of Ahaz's faith. That's also what Jesus will do. Jesus will prove that, we, that God is worthy of our faith. So Isaiah seven fourteen. it's okay if you sent that out for Christmas. It still does apply to Jesus because he's the ultimate fulfillment of the pattern that that verse launched. Jesus is the ultimate sign child. He is the ultimate Emmanuel. He is God with us in a literal sense of the word. I think that's why Matthew is going to quote Isaiah 7 and Matthew chapter 1. Many of you probably thought of this passage when I was laying out my reasons for not thinking it's about Jesus. Well, Matthew says in chapter 1, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew is saying Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the pattern that began in Isaiah 7. That God delivers us through the epitome of weakness, through children. That's what Isaiah's son proved. That's what Jesus proves. For both kids, the circumstances of the, of the nation of Israel were the same. In Jesus' day, just as in Ahaz's day, there was a crisis. Now it was the crisis of Roman oppression. The nation of Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire with an iron hand. For the common Jew, there was no freedom, there was no prosperity, there was no hope. All they were desperate for was God's deliverance. They were desperate for God to step in and deliver them from their enemies. And in the midst of that desperation, just as he did 700 years earlier, God steps in with an offer. God offers to his people 
a greater son, a son who would bring about deliverance, a son who would bring about the peace that they hoped for. We know that son to be Jesus. Isaiah didn't, but Isaiah spoke about that coming greater son back in Isaiah chapter 9. So you can turn there. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look starting in verse 1. Actually, we'll start in verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now what Isaiah is describing here is a day of complete and final military victory for the people of God. They have completely been delivered from their enemies. Their oppressors have been broken. The yoke that was upon them has been replaced with prosperity instead. He uses this interesting metaphor. Soldiers' cloaks and boots are now just used to fuel the fire in your kitchen because you don't need to outfit soldiers anymore. You don't need soldiers anymore because warfare is over forever. They are enjoying eternal peace. And here's how it happens. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God is saying here, the way I'm going to bring about this final and complete deliverance of my people is through a child. A child who will be king over all. There will be no end to the increase of his government. He will have authority over the whole planet. He will be the greatest king of all. And and Isaiah proves that with four titles. Four kingly titles of this son. The first one, wonderful counselor. We we often miss the point of that because we think of counseling in the modern English way. If you have a problem, you go talk to a counselor. That's not what it means in the Bible. Counselor in the Bible means a great military strategist. The idea here is this son will be a a miraculously brilliant commander-in-chief of his people. That's the idea of that title. Second one, mighty God or heroic God. This is no mere child. This is actually God in human flesh. Eternal father. Now, I always tripped up over this one. How can the, the son be father? That seems like it's confusing the Trinity. But father isn't a term for God the father. Father was just a word used in the ancient world to describe your king as your protector. Father means that he is the everlasting protector of the people of God. And finally, Prince of Peace. This son, this child, will usher in peace for God's people. And peace in Hebrew, it doesn't mean what we mean by English. It doesn't just mean the cessation of hostilities. Peace in Hebrew means wholeness completeness. It's the word shalom. It means that God is fulfilling all of his promises to you. Military, political, economic, spiritual, every promise God has made is being completely fulfilled in your life. That's shalom. Isaiah is saying this child will bring us shalom forever. And the way he will do it, what's going to accomplish this shalom? The zeal of the Lord. It's God who will bring about this perfect deliverance, not the people. They won't be able to take any credit for their peace and prosperity that they enjoy. It will totally be God who helps them. God doesn't want them to help themselves. He wants to do all the work by sending this child. Okay, now what I want you to notice here in in chapter 9 of Isaiah, there's no mention of the child's suffering, is there? There's no mention of the cross in this chapter. This actually lines up really well with the first half of Jesus' ministry. 
First half of the book of Matthew, you see nothing about the cross. You see nothing about suffering. Jesus wasn't talking about the cross. He was talking about the throne. First half of the book of Matthew, Jesus is offering not to be their savior, but to be their king. To be the perfect king of Israel who brings deliverance once and for all to the people of God. That, that offer reaches its climax right in the middle of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the language of a king. He is saying, I am the master, you are the ox. Take my yoke upon you, be my servant. As a result, I will bring you perfect peace, perfect shalom. Jesus is offering himself as their king. Okay, but what is that? What is the condition of that offer? Well, faith. They have to believe. They have to believe that Jesus is the king, that Jesus can deliver them. Will the nation respond in faith? Will they believe that Jesus is king? Well, you know how the story plays out. They make the same choice that Ahaz did. They reject the offer. They choose not to rely upon Jesus as their king. They choose not to believe that Jesus can deliver them. They reject Jesus. And from that point on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is headed to the cross, not to the throne. They reject the son of God. And as a result, they face the same consequence that Ahaz did. God still judges Israel's enemies. He still wipes out the Roman empire hundreds of years later, but not before the Romans wiped out Israel. 70 AD, the Roman armies come into Israel. They take over Jerusalem. They absolutely destroy it. In the following decades, they wipe out the nation of Israel. Over a million Jews die at the hands of the Romans. And God says, why? Because you rejected my offer. You rejected my offer of deliverance through Jesus Christ. You would not believe. And so not only am I going to judge your enemies, but I'm going to judge you too. And he totally wipes them out as a result. Okay, now let's talk about today. Does God help those who help themselves? Well, I think it's pretty clear Ben Franklin was wrong. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin was not right. We see throughout scripture over and over again, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who rely completely upon him. That's what God wants. God always rewards our trust, our faith. He always punishes our pride. God never wants us to try to help ourselves. He always wants us to rely upon him. That's always true. That's true for all people. That's true for unbelievers. For those who have not chosen to to receive, to accept the salvation that God offers, if they continue in that rejection, they will face the wrath of God. They will face his punishment. Now, if, if you're here this morning... And you look at your life and you look at, at your relationship with God, at, at your religion, at your spirituality, and, and you conclude that really what you're trying to do is you're trying to earn God's love. You're trying to earn heaven through, through, praying, through praying a lot, through coming to church, through doing good deeds, through giving to the poor. If that's you, you're trying to earn God's love. You need to know once and for all, from cover to cover the Bible, it's very clear, you can't do it. You can never earn God's love. You can never earn heaven. If that's your religion, trying to earn your way to God, you will fail. Good news is God sent his son, not just to be king, but to be savior, to take your sins upon himself, to take the punishment that you deserve, to rise from the dead victorious over death, and now to offer to you God's love as a free gift. God doesn't want you to try to earn his love. He wants to give it to you for free. That's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to work for it. 
You just have to receive it. Just believe that God wants to deliver you for all eternity through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus died for all of your sins, rose from the dead, and that God loves you as a free gift, then you are saved. Now, for the rest of us who have made that decision, we have received God's gift of eternal life. The reality is, is that we still face the same choice that Ahaz did and that Israel did. Every time you face a trial, or a difficulty in your life, whether it's a financial crisis, a relational crisis, a health crisis, whatever it may be, every time you face a trial, you face the same choice that Ahaz did. Will you turn to yourself? Will you rely upon your wit and your intellect, your hard work, your connections, your resources to fix your problems? Is that how you're going to approach life? Or are you going to rely upon God? Are you going to rely upon his word? Are you going to rely upon his help to get you through the difficulties of life? Now, in both scenarios, you may have to work hard. God doesn't want you to be lazy. He doesn't want you to be passive. The question is, what comes first? When you face difficulties, when you face trials in life, what comes first? Do you turn first to what you bring to the table or to what God brings to the table? I'll put it this way, really easy way to gauge what comes first in your life. When you have a really busy day, a really stressful day, Does God trump your busyness or does your busyness trump God? When you wake up in the morning and feel stressed, do you set aside your Bible, set aside your time in prayer and get to your to-do list? Because that's what life is about. Well, then you're relying upon yourself. You believe that at the end of the day, what matters most is what you can do. Or do you let God trump your busyness? Do you say, no matter how busy my day is, God comes first because he's the only one who can make my life work. God rewards that attitude. He delivers that person who relies upon him. That's what we want this morning. We want to grow in faith that God is still our ever-present source of deliverance. In every trial we face, in every difficulty, God wants to step in and deliver us, but we must believe. We must trust him. Now, one of the best ways I know to grow in our faith, to grow in our trust in God is through communion. Communion is meant to be a, a celebration, a remembrance of what God did for us through Jesus Christ. So we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. As a community, we're going to remember who Jesus is and what he did for our sins on the cross. As the guys come up and as the men prepare in the back, I just want to ask you to spend just the next minute just closing your eyes and going before the Lord. Go before the Lord and and just lay your life before him. Spend this minute thanking God that he doesn't want you to try to earn his love. He doesn't want you to try to earn eternity. He wants to give it to you as a free gift. Just go before him and thank him for that truth, that he wants to give you his love as a free gift. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your son. Lord, we confess that we deserve your wrath. We deserve your punishment. Thank you so much that Jesus willingly came and took our punishment in our place. Thank you that he gave his body and his blood so that we might be forgiven. Father, we thank you so much that you don't require us to try to earn your love. 
You don't require us to try to merit eternal life with you. You give it as a free gift, Lord. That's the only way we could receive it. Thank you so much for the gift that Jesus has earned for us. Lord, we celebrate him, we praise him, and Lord, we look forward to the fact that Isaiah 9 is not yet fulfilled, that he is coming back, that he will return to earth, we pray very soon, that he will bring perfect and lasting peace and prosperity, that he will put an end to warfare, he will put an end to pain and suffering, he will bring perfect and lasting shalom. Thank you for that. We praise him, we praise you, Lord. We pray that we would live lives worthy of you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.